0: Usually, in presidential election years of the past, August marks a new phase in election season. Conventions wrap up, rallies and events pick up on the campaign trail, and candidates debate in front of large audiences, all leading up to the moment voters go to the polls. But this year, pretty much none of those things will happen in the way that we're used to. The coronavirus fundamentally changed this election year. Many of the traditional events still populate the calendar between now and Election Day, but they will look a lot different. Less door-knocking, no mega-rallies, an increase in mail-in voting, among lots of other tweaks. But the pandemic isn't the only thing that makes this election unique. President Trump has disrupted political norms since his first run at the presidency. No president in modern times, perhaps ever, has been as dominant a figure on the national stage as Trump. He creates conversations and controversy, and he's also the incumbent. Historically, being the incumbent has been a major asset for presidential campaigns. But this year, with an election playing out against the backdrop of a pandemic, a major recession, and a racial reckoning, that might not be the case. Can presidential election history really be a guide to understanding the 2020 election season? President Trump beat the odds once before. Might he do it again? And as we spend the next few months watching presidential campaign politics, assessing winning messages and losing strategies, how many lessons can we really draw from the past in these highly unusual times? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. The Washington Post's chief political correspondent, Dan Balls, has been covering the presidency for decades. Really, the first political convention he covered was the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968. And so I brought Dan on the show to talk about how the pandemic has reshaped the 2020 election and what those changes mean for Trump's prospects of winning the presidency again. President Trump is an incumbent president running against a former Vice President Joe Biden. What can we learn from history about how this usually affects a race? Do most incumbent presidents win re-election?
1: Most incumbents do win re-election. There have been only a few cases where incumbents have lost re-election. We've seen that in our lifetimes. George H.W. Bush in 1992 sought a second term and lost to Bill Clinton. Jimmy Carter in 1980 sought a second term and lost to Ronald Reagan. So it's not unprecedented, but it is unusual. One of the things we've seen is that, for the most part, Americans have been willing to give a particular president and his party eight years in office, and so if you are an incumbent... Generally, you head into an election favored for re-election unless conditions are really lousy, unless the economy's in the tank or that you've gotten the country into an unpopular war or something like that. But in general, an incumbent has advantages over a challenger.
0: What were the circumstances for past incumbent presidents who've lost re-election?
1: Well, in the case of Jimmy Carter in 1980, it was a combination of things. One was the Iranian hostage crisis, which happened in the fall of 1979 and continued on through the duration of his presidency. It was a humiliation for Carter, and it conveyed a kind of a sense of weakness on the part of the United States that made a lot of people unhappy. In addition to that, he had a very weak economy, something called stagflation, which was to say slow growth and very high Inflation, And the third thing he had was a divided Democratic Party. He had been challenged in the primaries by Senator Ted Kennedy. He prevailed in that, but left his convention with the party still feeling sour and with the Kennedy people still feeling uh, embittered about what had happened.
0: So then using that as somewhat of a guide, what factors have we historically used to understand whether an incumbent was doing well and likely to win re-election?
1: There are a couple of things we look at. One is presidential approval. And historically, what we've thought is that if a president is below 50% in uh, overall job approval, that president is in a compromised position In his reelection campaign, I think we've learned in recent years that that 50 percent number is not quite as concrete as it had been. But the lower you are before 50 percent, the more trouble you are in. Another thing that we look at, obviously, are the economic indicators, the degree to which there is, you know, sustained and in some times robust growth in the gross domestic product. And obviously the most sensitive would be the unemployment rate and to some extent changes in disposable income. If you are somewhat over 50% in your approval rating and the unemployment rate and the economic numbers are well within the bounds of normal, you're going to be very, very tough to defeat, almost regardless of how strong your challenger may be or, or other things. Those tend to be very powerful indicators. If you look at President Trump, obviously, he's got problems on both those fronts.
0: Yeah. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Well, his approval rating has never been above 50 percent, even from the start. One of the things we've noticed about this president, which is different than almost every other president we've watched, is that his approval rating doesn't go up much and it doesn't go down much, which is to say he trades in a very narrow range, if you will. He's got a very solid base. And so his approval rating does not go much below the high 30s which is in contrast to some past presidents who saw their approval rating go into the low 30s or even into the 20s. The problem for him is that he can never push it up very high if there's that much opposition to him within the country. So for the most part, he's been in the low to mid 40s, roughly. And that's a very worrisome place to be for an incumbent, in part because most incumbent presidents don't get much more popular vote than their overall approval rating. So for this president, given that he's unlikely to get to 50 percent in his approval rating and so unless something dramatic happens, he needs to be able to win an election in which he could win with a popular vote of 46 or 47 or 48 percent. That's the challenge he faces. At the same time, if we had talked six months ago, the economic numbers look quite good for him. They were, in fact, pardon the pun, but his trump card to run for reelection. Unemployment was historically low. Growth rates, while not spectacular, were steady. And the stock market, which he uses, I think, as his principal indicator, was continuing to set new record highs. That all has been changed by the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic has trashed the economy. And so we now have an unemployment rate of double digits, basically just a tick above 10%. The growth rate in the second quarter went way down. We expect that it could come back up in the third quarter, but it's still going to be below where it had been when the pandemic started. And so the ability on Trump's part to argue that he has built and sustained a great economy has been damaged significantly by the pandemic.
0: We see Trump faltering on these metrics that we've used to assess incumbents in the past, approval rating and the state of the economy. But it also seems like perhaps Trump can't exactly be measured on traditional metrics or historically reliable indicators, given what we learned in 2016 and that we're amidst a global pandemic now. Do you think that Trump's 2020 performance might not be as tied to these metrics as presidential history would indicate?
1: It certainly wasn't in 2016. In the month before the election, one of our surveys found that a majority of Americans did not think he was fit to be president or had the temperament and personality to be president. We know that on election day, roughly that same percentage of Americans, well over 50%, They had an unfavorable opinion of him and did not think he was qualified to be president. And yet there were many people who might have said that who nonetheless voted for him. So one of the things we've learned with President Trump is that you can't take all of these historic measures in exactly the same way that we have applied them to past campaigns. He won an Electoral College majority but lost the popular vote by several million votes to Hillary Clinton. And so, again, it depends on what numbers you're looking at. But as always with Trump, there seems to be an ability on his part to kind of defy the odds. And I think that's one thing that's very much in the minds of a lot of Democrats, which is that they assumed and thought and and believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected when people went to the polls on Election Day in 2016, and nonetheless, Trump prevailed. So I think everybody watches him and wonders whether he's going to be able to defy the odds again.
0: So we have this unconventional candidate, but of course, that's not the only unusual thing about this election season. The calendar of campaign events looks very different. We'll essentially have these two virtual conventions over the next two weeks. A few weeks ago, we talked to Post reporter Michael Shearer about how conventions in many ways are mostly pageantry. But in this year's absence of conventions, absence of a real sort of start to the general election campaign, is it likely to have any meaningful impact on voters on how the election proceeds?
1: Michael is right the the conventions of modern times are are mostly pageantry and they're choreographed down to the minute and they're fully controlled by the nominee and and his or uh, her team but that does not to say that they are unimportant they are the last best opportunity for a nominee to present him or herself in as unfiltered a way as possible. In other words, they get several hours of primetime television to have their story told and to tell their own story and to tell the American people what they want to do as president. That's not insignificant. And even with somebody like uh, former Vice President Biden, who's been on the public stage for more than four decades, who served as vice president for eight years, who is in many ways a very familiar figure to a lot of people, there is a lot in the estimation of his advisors that people don't know about him, that they would like people to know about him. They believe that the more some of these things are told about his own life and his own personal story and some of the things he has done in office, the better off he will be in running in the fall campaigns. So this convention is an opportunity, even if it's virtual, for the Democrats to deliver that series of messages. And I think the same goes for President Trump and his allies. This will be a time in which they will be able to make a case either on behalf of the president and or against Joe Biden and now Senator Kamala Harris, again, unfiltered and with the attention of the country on them. One thing we don't know is what the viewership of these virtual conventions weeks will be like We don't know whether it will compare with what happens when you have all the balloon drops and all the hoopla and all of the pageantry of a regular convention. But one thing we know is that the intensity and the interest in this campaign is very, very high. So you would have to expect that there will be a lot of people who are paying attention to both weeks.
0: Another televised campaign moment that Americans ordinarily pay a lot of attention to are presidential debates. Starting in late September, there are three presidential debates. There's also a vice presidential debate in there. At this point, what do we know about how these debates will look this year?
1: Well, at this point, we know that they will look quite similar to past debates, except the audience will be much, much smaller And that assumes that the debates are held before an audience. The Commission on Presidential Debates sets up the dates and the locations well in advance of the debates. They do that a year or more in advance. Traditionally, they've held them all on college campuses and in part as a way to encourage civic education. We've already seen two universities who were scheduled to hold the debates back out because of the pandemic. The first to back out was the University of Michigan. My
0: alma mater. Go Blue. Your alma mater. Well, there you go.
1: (laughs) That debate has been moved to uh, Performing Arts Center in uh, Miami, which hosted the first Democratic debate. The first debate, which was to be held at the University of Notre Dame on September 29th, has been moved to Cleveland, where it will be co-hosted by the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western Reserve. As a footnote, the Cleveland Clinic is acting as the sort of health protocol uh, agent for all of the debates. They are very much determined to try to hold that debate in as normal a way as possible, again, with precautions for COVID-19. Those two debates are scheduled to go on in these public places. The other two debates are at universities as well. I think that one of the things we know is that the commission has been pretty rigorous in laying plans. And they're obviously prepared, if the pandemic is flaring, to figure out just how much of an audience you can have.
0: Even in a year where debates proceed as usual, there's lots of talk about how important they actually are and whether or not they matter much to the outcome of the election. So what do we know about this from history? How important are debates?
1: You get an interesting debate about the debates as to how, how important they are. In many ways, they are not decisive, but there have been a few instances in which there have been certainly decisive moments. Most recently, the 2012 debate between then-President Obama and Mitt Romney, Obama, which is not uncommon for incumbents, had a very tough first debate. Incumbents are often rusty when they start these debates whereas the challenger has been through many, many debates en route to the nomination. And this was the case in 2012. Mitt Romney was a very strong debater, and President Obama was a pretty weak debater. And the Democrats were very nervous after that debate about what might happen in the election unless the president could turn it around, which he was able to do in the second debate.
0: Outside of these televised events, much of the hard work of a campaign usually happens on the ground. Grassroots organizing, canvassing, local events... All of that looks much different this time around. How are each of the campaigns approaching voter outreach events in the absence of a traditional campaign trail?
1: The Democrats have totally reinvented the way they're doing their voter contact and mobilization. Jen O'Malley Dillon, who is the campaign manager for Joe Biden and who came in literally at the time when the pandemic had hit and they had to essentially all go to work out of their homes rather than their Philadelphia office. Jen O'Malley Dillon comes out of the organizing part of the Democratic Party. She has been an organizer and has run organizing in presidential campaigns. All of that done with boots on the ground and thousands and thousands of volunteers in the states, paid staff and volunteers going door to door, face to face, making contact with voters directly. They have, for the most part, scrapped that almost entirely, and they are doing it all virtually. This is a test. No one can tell at this point how effective or efficient it is. The early signs, according to them, are that they are able to do some things that they think are are pretty effective. The Trump campaign continues to try to do a combination of virtual through social media and old-fashioned boots on the ground. They say they are going to have or that they do have volunteers on the ground who are going door to door to talk to voters and make sure that they turn out to vote if they're Trump supporters. But it's certainly scaled back. And I think there are many voters who are more wary of answering a knock on the door from a campaign worker. They might just say, well, drop the literature on my front porch and I'll take a look at it later. Another thing that we just heard this week is that the president, who obviously loves huge rallies, does not want to have rallies where there are empty seats. And it's nearly impossible at this point under the social distancing guidelines uh, of the government to hold an event in which you have people packed into an arena. So I don't know what the president ultimately will do on that front in terms of doing, frankly, what he does best, which is speaking before a big crowd and energizing them and the ripple effect of that.
0: When we consider where these candidates are trying to reach voters, it's, of course, worth considering the Electoral College map. Trump lost the popular vote, as you said, in 2016. He might lose it again. But, of course, that doesn't matter when it comes to determining our next president. The Electoral College does. So what are the key states in play this year?
1: There are four states that are left over from 2016, which were very close and very important. Florida being the biggest of those, which Trump won by 1.2% percentage points. And then the three northern states that he won by a combined seventy-seven or 78,000 votes. Those are Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those four are obviously the key battlegrounds to start. But there are a couple of other states that are now certainly very much on the battleground list. And one of those is North Carolina. Obama won that in 2008, lost it in 2012, and Trump won it in 2016. The other is Arizona, which the Democrats haven't won in a while. It's been historically a pretty solid Republican state, but it's a state like some other states in the South and West that is changing demographically. And we now see Arizona as very much a battleground state and one that while Democrats haven't won presidentially for, for a good long time, that Joe Biden has a very real opportunity to win that. That's important in part because if Trump were to win Florida again, the Democrats would have to win all three of those northern states in order for Biden to win the Electoral College majority. Wisconsin has often been considered the most difficult of those three. It has 10 electoral votes. Arizona has 11 electoral votes. So let's say Biden were to lose Wisconsin, he could substitute Arizona and therefore win the Electoral College, all other things being equal. Georgia is another state that the Democrats are looking at. There are two important Senate races there. Hillary Clinton came closer than some past Democrats have come in that state for a while. So that's another state that's certainly on the maps. People talk about Texas. The early polling in Texas makes it look competitive, but that's sometimes been the case in the past. And Texas is an enormous investment for any Democratic nominee. I'd make one last point about this, which is, um, at this point, it appears as though Joe Biden has more paths to 270 electoral votes than does President Trump. There aren't states at this point that he did not win in 2016 that it looks like he could win. Uh, They're competing in New Hampshire, which doesn't have many electoral votes, but he came very, very close there. They're competing in Minnesota, which the Trump campaign thinks is a potentially gettable state. They've talked about Nevada as a possible state. But at this stage, we're still early in terms of breaking this down. At this stage, Those look more difficult than the opportunities that Biden has in a place like Arizona or North Carolina or even maybe Georgia.
0: And within these states and really around the country, are there particular groups of voters that each campaign is looking to win over?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that we have to think about this in two ways. One is kind of the the traditional constituencies of each party. And for Democrats especially, this is very, very important this year. One of the reasons that uh, Secretary Clinton lost in 2016 was that she underperformed in the African-American community in some important places, particularly Milwaukee and Detroit. And the Democrats need... Not just the kind of margins they get out of the African-American community, they need big turnout. Now, it's very difficult for any Democratic nominee to get the kind of turnout that Barack Obama got as the first African-American president. But having Senator Harris on the ticket could help energize the black community. And so the Democrats have to pay attention to that. For the Trump campaign, they need to do everything they can, again, to get their base mobilized. But then you look beyond that, and I think there are a couple of things that are important. One is the power of the female vote this time is going to be enormously important. We saw in 2018 that the shift in the vote among women toward the Democrats helped to bring the majority in the House to the Democratic Party. And I think what we obviously have seen over the last few years, a shift among white college-educated women in the direction of the Democratic Party. They're now almost a part of the Democratic base. So that's a vote that the Biden campaign will be counting on. But again, you can't take it for granted. And the Trump campaign recognizes that they have problems in in suburbia with suburban women. And they're going to do what they can to basically make those voters feel conflicted about a vote for Joe Biden. The other interesting group that we're watching closely right now are voters who are over age 65. Trump won that group in 2016. But at this point in the polling, Biden is winning that constituency. And if he's able to do that, that would be a tremendous blow To Donald Trump, in part because um, those voters are what you might call overrepresented in those three northern states. Those states are overwhelmingly white and they are somewhat disproportionately older in their population. So if Biden can cut into that group, that would bode well for his prospects. In November.
0: Now, all of this brings us to what used to be the end of this process. Election Day might not be quite the end this year. It looks like it's more likely to be election week or election month, perhaps. What can we expect Election Day to look like this year?
1: I think we have to expect that this is going to be a tumultuous election day and a contentious election day. There's already litigation underway about voting rules in different states as states either enact restrictions or their efforts to loosen those restrictions. The controversy over voting by mail, which the president has made a central part of his argument right now, will continue to fester and be part of the backdrop and, and on election day, the foreground of what happens, the counting process could be difficult. Voting in person will be challenging, no doubt, because of the continuation of the pandemic. We know that it's not going to be gone at that point. And so I think that we are in for both a slow count. We know historically that California, because of so many mail-in voters, sometimes takes a couple of weeks to finally get a vote, but I think we're going to see that in more places and there's going to be more challenges. It could be a pretty ugly aftermath of this election, especially if the outcome appears to be close. You would then have both sides geared up for what could be a series of tough battles in individual states over how the votes are counted or whether they need to be recounted.
0: Okay, we've spent a lot of time talking about precedent and the history of American elections. But it feels like at this moment, maybe we should abandon analysis based on precedent because it's really so completely unusual or caught in a pandemic. Is it possible that everything we just discussed, how voters historically behave, metrics to measure incumbents, electoral college history, will it be proven totally irrelevant here?
1: I don't think it will be proven totally irrelevant. I think that the thing that is important is that this election is going to be competing for people's attention against a pandemic that affects everybody's daily lives, both their health and safety, but also the way they live their lives. And as the pandemic moves around the country, as there are new hotspots and as it cools in places, as people question whether their children should or shouldn't be in elementary and secondary schools, as colleges start to open up, often teaching almost all through online learning, but having people on campus. We're going to be focused very, very heavily on all of that. And so I think that it does throw into question many of the assumptions that we might have had about the past. But I go back to a point that I made earlier, which is people know this is a very important election and people on both sides believe that the stakes in this election are enormous. And the attention that people have been paying to this election, really from the beginning of the Democratic uh, nomination process right up until today, suggests that they are motivated to vote. And and frankly, for many people, they already know how they intend to vote. But there are still persuadable voters out there, and there are still polls that are likely to tighten, as they normally do in a race like this. And so you've got, in a sense, the traditional political instincts competing against a virus and an economic situation that has put lives in turmoil and made people more insecure both about their health and their own economic well-being that that will affect how much they're paying attention and conceivably what their conclusions are as they start to cast their ballots.
0: All right. So no matter how much is different, the will of the American voters to take part in our democracy remains, hopefully, as far as we can tell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Dan, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: This has been another episode of Can He Do That? To read the related Dan Ball story in full, check out our episode notes. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.